You're listening to the Redeemer Theological Academy with Pastor Brian Cashelmeyer of Redeemer Lutheran Church, Los Alamos, New Mexico. On the Redeemer Theological Academy, we mine the riches of the Scripture and the Church Fathers and find in them Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer. Here's the Academy with Pastor Cashelmeyer. Welcome back to the Redeemer Theological Academy. Now, in our last lecture, we talked about Isaiah chapter 26. Today, we want to finish up chapter 26 and, at the same time, chapter 27. With the combination of these two chapters, we want to see the beginning message of 26. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. We want to connect that with chapter 27 at verse 9. Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. We want to see this direct correlation between the singing and the atoning. That the song uh, that is sung is related to the atonement that is made. Guilt being taken away brings joy into the mouth of the people of God. Now let's start with chapter 26, verse 15. But you have increased the nation, O Yahweh. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. Now in this passage, we learn that this is God's work. God is the one who has increased the nation. God is the one who has enlarged the borders of the land. Now, what exactly are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the spreading of God's kingdom, the multiplication of God's people. And this increase comes through the preaching of Christ. As we have said many times before, God's kingdom comes with God's word, in which the Holy Spirit is given and hearts believe and people begin to live lives according to it. So it is the preaching of Christ to the nations that expands the borders of the land, and it is proclaimed far and wide from the ends of the earth. As the prophets begin to preach and proclaim, and the apostles will continue as they take this message out of Jerusalem and into the world. Now Isaiah continues at verse 16. And he states, O Yahweh, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth. So were we because of you, O Yahweh. We were pregnant. We writhed. But we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth. And the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. First of all, when we look at this passage, we want to note the difference in the pronouns. So that at verse 16, you have Isaiah speaking about them. Those people. They. They sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer. When your discipline 
O Yahweh, was upon them. So here we have Isaiah talking about them, they, those people who sought you in distress. But now in the next verse, he takes it to include himself. He says that like a pregnant woman who cries out in her pangs, so were we. We were pregnant. We ride. We have given birth. We have accomplished no deliverance. Now take note how Isaiah includes himself as part of this people of God. That as the people, the people are pregnant. They are crying out. They are experiencing these pains of childbearing. Now Jesus will use the same imagery later on in John's Gospel, chapter 16, in which Jesus says, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So Jesus will use that imagery of a woman in labor, that moment of pain and trial and tribulation, but yet there's a turning point when the child is born, and all of that pain is now in the past. And once the pain is gone, well, there's just joy because of new life. Now, we all can understand this concept. The anticipation and waiting of a delivery of a baby because of the goal, the trial and the pain and the, the pangs of child labor can be endured. But notice what Isaiah is saying here in the text, that they cried out, they had these pains, they were pregnant, and they writhed. But instead of joy, instead of a new birth, a new life, they give birth to wind, and there is no deliverance that is accomplished, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. So they are still in this state in which they are being oppressed and they are afflicted. Now it's interesting that when we look at it in this light, we take this Hebrew word ruach and we translate it as wind. So that we have given birth to wind and nothing has been accomplished. The idea of this nothingness, all the pain, birth, and nothing. But now remember, that word ruach can also mean spirit. And primarily, in fact, means spirit, not only wind, but also breath, but most likely spirit. Now, in fact, when the Jewish rabbis, now we must be clear that these were Jewish rabbis, had translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek in what is known as the Septuagint. When these rabbis translated into Greek, they did not leave it as just wind. But in particular, it is a spirit of deliverance. Now, this makes all the difference in the world. If it's the labor pain and the trials and the pangs and this uh, just this anguish and then you give birth to wind, well, it's like there's no satisfaction. But on the other hand, 
if we see this as Ruach, as the Spirit, then we see something completely different. A Spirit in particular of deliverance. So when the Septuagint, the Greek translation, adds this phrase, Spirit of deliverance, here we are contrasting the work of God versus the work of man. For man cannot accomplish deliverance in the earth, but by giving birth to the spirit of deliverance. Well, then this is God's accomplishment. For God is the one who sends his spirit to give life. And so, in fact, the early church father, like Cyril of Alexandria, when he's reading the Greek of Isaiah, he can't help but note that this spirit of deliverance, this birthing the spirit of deliverance, is this apostolic, gospel message, evangelical preaching out of Jerusalem, out of the city of God, bringing forth the Holy Spirit, teaching about Christ. So that these pains and these trials and these pangs, they have a goal. They do have the goal of the new birth. And when the new birth comes, there is joy in this world. Now, when Isaiah continues in the next verse, he says this, something of joy. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. So we see something interesting taking place here, that the contrast is not that we had trouble, we were in pain, and then we gave birth to nothing. But instead, you have this connection between the giving birth of the spirit, the ruach, or as the Greek would tell us, the spirit of deliverance, and then you have the message of deliverance, the message that we will be delivered from death. The dead will actually live. Their bodies shall rise. For the life-giving Spirit is poured out. And where the Spirit of God comes with the Word of God with power, there is life and joy. So Isaiah says in verse 19, Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Of course, we see then the correlation. The correlation between the temporary suffering of childbirth, the labor pains, but then the continued joy of the new life being brought into the world. You have the language of the earth giving birth to the dead, that the dead shall live and the bodies shall rise. That You will have new life in the new creation. For this is precisely what Christ came to do, to give to us this joy, that we would awake and we would sing for joy. Remember, this is how the whole chapter began. The whole chapter began that we should sing for joy. Remember, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. So the chapter begins with this reason for singing, the reason for rejoicing. 
So why would verse 18 say, We had all this pain, and we gave birth to the wind? That is nothing. It makes much more sense that through all of this pain, God was working, bringing the birth of the Spirit, which brings new birth in our lives. The dead shall live, the body shall rise, even the earth will give birth to the dead. You see, there is sorrow and sadness in death, but there is joy in the resurrection from the dead. So here we have the promise of the resurrection of the body. So as Jesus talks to, to Mary and Martha when they lose their brother Lazarus, and Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And this is the joy that we have, that in Christ there is no condemnation. In Christ we are a new creation. In Christ we have life. And so, in fact, those who die, who are believers in Christ, yet they live. For a believer in Christ, it's not technically death, but in reality just a mere sleeping. The saints of God in Christ have fallen asleep. And so they should not fear death any more than they fear in taking a nap or going to bed each night. In fact, each day we have a dress rehearsal where we begin the day and we arise and we wake up and we live in the grace of God. And then as evening comes, we go to rest in his forgiveness and we go to sleep knowing that the next day we rise again to newness of life. And so in Christ we are sleeping. We are to awake, to arise, and to sing. Now it is interesting to note that when you take a passage like this and you use this allegory and metaphor of, of dew, D-E-W, this, this moisture in the morning. When you rise up in the morning and you awake and the dew is on the ground, that water, that water that brings the green living plants, the vegetation. Well, it says that we are to arise and to sing. Why? Because your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. So each morning when you rise and you see the dew on the ground, that, that moisture, that water, where there's water, there is life. There is newness of life. But now again, when we use these allegories, these metaphors of the prophets, one of the interesting uh, dilemmas that we run into is trying to identify specifically <laughs> what the dew is. Now, for example, uh, Eusebius of Caesarea when he looks at this, he says, well, obviously, the dew is Christ because it is the dew of light. Christ is the light of the world. Christ gives life to the world. So, therefore, the dew is Christ. He comes to bring life. Just as the rain comes down from the heavens and waters the earth, so God sends forth his word. Now, on the other hand, Cyril of Alexandria sees this passage and says, Well, the dew, the dew is the dew of light. 
which of course is the Holy Spirit, <laughs> because the Holy Spirit is the life-giving Spirit. He's the one that enlightens all people, and as Psalm 104 says, when you send forth your Spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. After all, we are baptized with water and the Spirit, which is a washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Now, on the other hand, you have someone like Luther who looks at this and says, well, the due of God, your due, is an act of God to restore life. In other words, that it is done by grace alone. The dew comes when we rise up in the morning. It's there. There's nothing that we did to toil or to bring it about. It just happens as an act from God to restore and to renew life. Now, when you look at a passage like this and you say that the dew is God's dew, D-E-W, and it brings forth this newness of life, well, all three are correct. Yes, it is Christ who is the dew. Yes, it is the Holy Spirit who is the life-giving dew. And yes, of course, it is an act of God to restore life. You cannot separate an act of God from God. You cannot separate the recreating, life-giving activity of Christ from the Spirit. And of course, likewise, you cannot separate this work from the Father. For the answer to all of these is yes and amen. God's do, D-E-W, restores and brings life. It is God's act and it is God who does these things himself. The one who acts and his action. Now let's continue with the next verse at verse 20. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. Now, in a passage like this, that fury, this is the divine wrath. This is the judgment to come. And, of course, throughout the Old Testament scriptures, when we see a historical event of God's wrath being poured out, all of those temporal judgments point towards the eternal judgment. All of those individual judgments point to the last judgment. Now, in a passage like this that is pointing to the fury, the divine wrath of God being poured out, you have the threat that is being told and revealed to the people of God, the ones that are my people, the remnant, those who are righteous through faith. And thus, you have this threat about this wrath, but you have the promise. Enter into the chambers, shut the doors behind you, hide yourselves, take refuge in Christ. For the wrath is temporary, it's poured out upon Christ, and those who are in Christ will not be condemned. Now in the very next verse in 21, we continue. For behold, Yahweh is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it, and will no more cover its slain. 
Now, here is a passage that's talking about this wrath being poured out, this fury, this judgment. And like we just said, all of these judgments in the plural, all of these historical times where the wrath is poured out, they point to the final judgment, the universal judgment. The earth will disclose the blood shed on it. This should ring a bell for us, taking us all the way back to the book of Genesis, that when Cain slays his brother Abel, the blood of Abel cries out from the ground, calling for vengeance, calling for justice. Thus, throughout all the history of the world, you have this constant uh, battle going on, a spiritual war and it results in physical casualties. So that Cain slaughters, murders, takes the blood, the life of his brother. And the martyrs throughout the ages lose their lives. Their blood is poured out, persecuted for the sake of Christ, for the word of God in his kingdom. Therefore, if we look at this properly, the very first martyr who dies for the sake of his faith, being found in God, taking refuge there, was slain by Cain. Now, this continues throughout the ages. Those are martyrs that live their life in faith, but yet the world hates them. The world cannot stand them. The world is at enmity. Why? Because creation is in rebellion against the Creator. So since the days of Abel's martyrdom, you've had a whole parade of martyrs down through the ages. In fact, you get to the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of Moses in chapter 32. That song that Moses teaches us to sing he teaches us to sing and to rejoice with him. Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. So here we have that song, that song of rejoicing with Yahweh. Rejoicing with the one who is life, who gives life to the dead. Rejoicing with the one who avenges the slain. That the earth will disclose the blood shed on it, and will no more cover its slain. For those who are in the grave, they shall come out from the ground. For the ground, saturated with blood, cries out. But the believers who are resurrected, the earth gives birth to the dead. They awaken and they rejoice and they sing. They sing because their salvation has come and they have waited for it in anticipation. And that's, of course, what Moses teaches us at the very end of Genesis. When he says, wait for Yahweh's salvation. Now, in the next chapter of Isaiah, in chapter 27, like we already discussed at the beginning of this lecture, this is where Isaiah will talk about the atoning for sin. Remember, zero in on verse 9. Therefore, 
By this the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sins, when he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces. No Asherim, no incense altars will remain standing. And so in chapter 27, as we learn about the singing and the rejoicing from 26, the earth giving birth to the dead, the dead in Christ shall live, the body shall be raised, there shall be joy in Christ and life, because the guilt has been atoned for. Sins have been removed, and the wages of sin is death. The curse has been reversed. There is no longer condemnation. There is salvation. There is no longer sin. There is righteousness. There is no longer death. There is life. And in that rejoicing, God removes all of the false coverings, all of the false worship that has been introduced by mankind. Worship that tries to avoid and rescue from death but has no power. And so in chapter 7, we get to the point where God atones for sin. He removes it. And that's why verse 1 says, in that day. Now remember, as we talked before, in that day is a future event. The promise is given and the prophet speaks as if it were a present reality. And all of these promises in the future in that day will find their ultimate fulfillment in the incarnation. It is in that day, in time, where the Creator will come and dwell in the midst of creation. God will be made man. In that day, Isaiah says in chapter 27, Yahweh with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Now, Eusebius of Caesarea and Cyril of Alexandria will quickly zero in on Christ here, that this language and this image of a hard, great, and strong sword is Christ himself. This is God acting to save his people. This is Yahweh's salvation. Salvation that comes by delivering us from the strong man. That this is military language. This is war language. This is the sword that comes to punish Leviathan, this serpent, this dragon. Now, of course, if Christ is the sword that comes to defeat Leviathan, the serpent, the dragon, is none other than Satan. Going back to the Garden of Eden, that it is the devil who is the deceiver, who is the murderer from the very beginning. He is that serpent that deceived Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and to spark a war with God. Sin is rightly seen as an act of war against God's kingdom. It is at this point where the lines are drawn and Adam and Eve have now been recruited into the army of the devil. They have been brought into this dominion of darkness so that they cannot see the light. And in that sin, in that transgression, 
They start this rebellion against God and his kingdom. They refuse to listen to God's word and instead listen to the lies of the devil, which bring death. Now, this language of the serpent, the dragon, and Leviathan. In Revelation chapter 12, we are told that the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, and Satan is the enemy of God. Now, when humanity was recruited by the devil, again, this was an act of war, an act of treason. It is only God who can redeem us, who can rescue us and deliver us from the clutches of the oppressor. So it is God in his kingdom that comes to take us and to remove us from the dominion of darkness, to bring us into his kingdom of light. A mere human being cannot defeat the devil, but the God-man, the incarnate one, Emmanuel, he can. And this was the promise given to Eve, that the virgin should conceive and bear a child, his name being Emmanuel, he would crush the serpent's head. He would forgive sin and bring life everlasting. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Redeemer Theological Academy. For more episodes or to leave comments about this show, please visit our website, RedeemerTheologicalAcademy.org. Again, that's RedeemerTheologicalAcademy.org. Thanks for listening, and may our Redeemer Jesus Christ continue to be your life and salvation, your hope and your peace.